Well, you certainly have already been blessed this morning tremendously, not because Jimmy Davis is not preaching this morning, but because I did not sing the special offertory music. You are very much blessed because of that. Jimmy, amazing. I'm so blown away that you would do that and do it so well and do it unto the Lord. Thank you for blessing me. I, that was my blessing this morning to hear you do that. God bless you. Wow. Um, don't you just love it when something of great inspiration just smacks you? Maybe it's a, a line from a poem or a song. Maybe it's something that a friend has said. Maybe it's a place you've gone and visited and you see a spectacular sight. My wife and I got a chance this summer to go to Crater Lake, Oregon. Now, I, I want to take the poll. Who has been to Crater Lake, Oregon? I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. That's an old Billy Graham joke. Uh, <laughs> it's spectacular. In fact, we were on an adventure tour where 12 of us were in this van. They made us close our eyes as we drove around at the very first sighting, get out, hold hands with our eyes shut, get right to the rim, and then our, our guide said, okay, now open your eyes, and it's stunning. It's a volcano that blew up 7,000 years ago and then fell in on itself, creating a almost completely round hole that's been filled with pure snow water with another volcano that came up inside of itself coned out above the water making another little small volcano inside six miles across deep blue water that when you look at it right over the top which we did from a boat it looks like it has diamonds in it it's, it's spectacular my wife and I blew up two pictures we just put them on the wall of our living room and and for the last three days i've been just looking up at the wall going that's amazing that's amazing that's amazing there's a young man at macaulay where i teach i really didn't even notice him the first year i was there two years ago i was in the middle school he was a sophomore at that time and last year i saw him walking around campus a little bit and he's very noticeable He's of uh, Indian descent, the country of India. He's very short, and relatively speaking, when I say very, I have to use the word very short to say to mean he really is short. <laughs> Thank you for that, Curtis, that courtesy laugh. <laughs> he, um, he is facially deformed. He has a hunchback. One leg is longer than the other one. The doctors told his mother when she was pregnant, there is no hope. Abort this child. He was born with facial deformities, holes in his heart, uh, problems with his spine, and no stomach. And this year he will graduate from Macaulay. And in his, with his own love of Jesus Christ and his parents' love of Jesus Christ, he started a foundation 
a few years ago called Love Without Reason, meaning love, and you don't have to have a reason for our love for you. And that foundation has taken special doctors around the world to operate on children with deformities like himself. And this summer, he went to Kenya with a set of doctors performing the 500th surgery that has been funded by his foundation. And he hasn't even graduated from high school. He's done more in his life than I will do in all of mine by the age of 18. And if he walked in here, you would almost look away from him. That's inspiring. The Word of God is like that to the believer. It is supposed to grab you and cut you to the very marrow of your being. It says that it will do that. It is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword cutting you. Have you had moments in your life when you were reading a text, maybe in a quiet time, a devotional time? Maybe you were in Sunday school class and a teacher read something. Maybe you were sitting there and a preacher actually said something a certain way from the Bible and like a lightning bolt, you were struck. I hope you've had those experiences. It is the time the Lord Jesus Christ is carving us and molding us into his likeness through his word. I have had several of those moments. I remember the first time I truly understood Joshua's language when at the end of his life, at the very end of his life, he tells his, the, the Israelites, he said, you can serve the Canaanites or the, or the gods or the, I mean, the, the gods of the Canaanites or the gods from which we came from the Egyptians, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I just heard a lightning bolt of conviction in his voice. I remember reading as a believer the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego passage of the fiery furnace passage in Daniel. And when they say to, I think it's Nebuchadnezzar, they say, our God is able to save us from this furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow to your idols. As a young athlete, that got my attention. I think I told you when I was preaching here before that I preached through the book of James and I saw that y'all are going to go through the book of James. I immediately thought of the verse again. I preached through the book of James at a church I pastored 10 years ago and I was preparing this little section where James 1.20 is, and a verse hit me like a lightning bolt. The anger of man 
does not produce the righteousness of God. I got carved that day in that sermon preparation. One of my favorite passages is from the Gospels. In the last week of Jesus' life, he's on the Temple Mount. He's trying to be tricked by the teachers of the law. And they come to him and say, should we pay taxes? And he says, show me a coin. Whose image is on it? It's Caesar's. Then render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. And render to God the things that are God. This past week, to a group of 15 seniors at Macaulay, I shared that text, put it in its context, brought them back to Genesis chapter 1, where it says we should make them in our likeness, our image. And I connected Jesus' words to Genesis chapter 1, and I pointed to him, and I said, you were made in the image of God. You should have seen the light bulbs go off in their heads. It was really cool. Really cool. This summer I spent some time in 2 Corinthians, a book that you had two texts read to you just a minute ago. I was just devotionally spending some time in the book. It's, it's not 1 Corinthians. You know, 1 Corinthians sort of gets, you know, a lot of the glory of the Corinthian books. It's the, it's the 1 Corinthians is the passage where we talk about unity and then, and, I mean, it's the book, we talk about unity and purity, and, and we talk about spiritual gifts and all that great understanding of spiritual gifts in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. You get to read it at all the weddings that none of you went to this summer. And, and then the powerful resurrection conversation at the end. 2 Corinthians, two of the major themes, giving money, submission to authority. Not so great topics in today's culture. So I spent time in 2 Corinthians trying to be refreshed in that. And when I did, I saw some really cool passages, some really one-liners, some cool passages that are there that we sort of uh, affixed to 2 Corinthians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. From chapter 5. From chapter 9. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. From chapter 11, even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. From chapter 12, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. From chapter 13, examine yourself. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Certainly the book has some moments that are reflective and powerful and can sear you to the very marrow of your being. I found another one. And this summer I had another lightning bolt experience where when I read it and all of a sudden I took it in context and I realized what Paul says throughout the book and I reflected back on this verse and I read it again. I went, wow. And I got carved again. And I want to set that up for you. Paul answers a question of why. He answers a question 
of why some certain things happen. And he and then he goes about in the book all the way through it detailing and pointing back to and fixating on those things. The passages that we read this morning are two of the major passages by which he details those things. Let me take you and show you everywhere he talks about the afflictions. It starts in, ver- in chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. He then, in chapter 4, verses 8 to 12, one of the passages we read, I'll read the first verse again. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Then in chapter 6, Verses 4 and 5. But in everything, committing ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. In chapter 7, verse 5, he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. Then that major passage in chapter 11 that was read 23 through 28, when he says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers and dangers. And it keeps going on. We just read it. And even in chapter 12, he mentions it again. Verse 10. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. These are the cataloging throughout 2 Corinthians of what has happened to Paul throughout his missionary journeys as he has taken the gospel across the Mediterranean plain and north and south and back to Jerusalem and back and forth and all of the stuff and agony, and afflictions, and distresses, and near-death experiences that he experienced. And you probably have heard sermons on these texts. And more than likely, a preacher has stood up and said, in a sort of concluding fashion, that isn't it amazing that a man would endure all of that to speak of the love of God in Christ to everyone he met. It must be true. Who would endure that? Who would go through it? 
Who could make it? Maybe that preacher might also add, doesn't it show the reality that when we truly do the work of Christ and we are breaking new ground with the gospel and we are proclaiming salvation to the lost, Satan does not like it and we see spiritual warfare flying. And if your preacher were to conclude that sermon right there, he would have spoken well. He, he would have spoken very well. But I found that lightning bolt. I, I almost couldn't believe it. It seems simple. And Paul is so personable, personable and personal when he says why it happened. And it goes back to chapter 1 in 2 Corinthians, right out of the gate. And in verse 8 and 9, we read, For we do not want you to be unaware, and he uses the plural we because he's writing for himself and Timothy, for we, myself, Paul, and Timothy, do not want you, the church at Corinth, to be unaware, brethren, that our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond, beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Paul is confessing in a deep spiritual insight that beyond what his afflictions would do for the spreading of the gospel, God was personally working on this one man and his mentee, Timothy, to build in them a mature faith of trusting alone in the God who raises the dead. Not trusting in his eloquence, not trusting in his pharisaical background, his knowledge of the Old Testament, not trusting his ability to dunk a basketball or run a marathon or be a, uh, asked to be involved in Mensa, not trusting in his ability to make money, not trusting his where he lives or where he went to school, but God working on two of his servants, two of his children, to simply break them down so that they would only trust in him. I was devastated by that. Doesn't Paul already trust in God? 
He's being beaten and stoned. He's being left for dead and shipwrecked. He's being insulted and he's being betrayed. Doesn't that show a level of trust that would blow away anybody in this room? Including and most emphatically myself. But Paul confesses that the God who redeemed him from legalism and pharisaicalism was still working on him through all this affliction that he might simply put his trust in the God who raises the dead. Is there any God spoken out of man's mouth higher than a God who raises the dead? Isn't that the end result? I started reflecting on my own life. I'm 59 years old and, you know, we, Jenny and I have never been stoned or beaten. We've never been shipwrecked. We've never been, uh, you know, tarred and feathered. Uh, I have had a few elders go after me in the past. I have had um, a, a family member not be very kind to me. I've, I've had, we've had some medical issues that were pretty difficult that we've been through. I started reflecting on all of that. I went back through my life. And I could see God saying, do you trust me? Do you, do you solely and only trust me? Sometimes I did. Sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I struggled. But I saw the hand of God carving, whittling, molding, shaping me, my wife, my children. I challenge you to look back at your life. And if you struggled or wondered or doubted or screamed at that time, maybe turn that into, God, were you calling me to trust you? Even more. Even deeper. I'll finish with this. Just a couple of quick stories. This so hit me this summer. I, I, said, I said to the Lord just in that sort of casual conversational way, okay, God, this is kind of cool. I've, I've got a new insight. I'm, I'm not a preacher that's learned everything yet. And I said, if you want me to use this with helping people, that'd be great. And Bam! Right out of the gate, it started. I started having situations happen, and I would talk to people and look at people and say, let me share this insight from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And I would share this, hopefully, in a good and contextual and loving way. Um, I had a, a gal that was a cheerleader at Duke when I was there, and uh, we were Facebook friends, and she married this great guy from Atlanta, and he became a very successful businessman, and he was a United States congressman for a little while, and 
she's a great gal, and she, when she posts stuff on Facebook, she often reflects on the Lord, and so we, you know, had conversations, and I got back from one of our trips this summer, and I looked at a Facebook post, and I went, whoa, what has happened? So something, I'm, I missed something. I was away from social media, and I, I had to kind of send her a message, and I said, Kim, can you, can you tell me what you're talking about here? And she wrote back, Jim, two weeks ago, I woke up, and my husband was dead next to me. He had died in his sleep. 61 years old. And in conversation through social media, I shared with her this text. That's a tough situation. There's a young man who was in my youth group at First Prez many years ago. You might know him or remember him. He went to Hickson High School, was a great trumpeter. If you ever played golf at the Chattanooga Golf and Country Club, he would serenade you when you came down one of the fairways. And he went off to college and got a music degree, and then he felt called to the ministry. He went to seminary, got a master's divinity, then he married a gal. He was a youth pastor in South Carolina for a long time, then he got called to a very small church in New Mexico. He's in New Mexico. He's been there several years. We have talked over the years, particularly in the last three years, as he's worked through some difficulties. He called me five weeks ago and said, Jim, I have acute leukemia. And I'm going to Albuquerque to start a three-week regiment that they're going to try to kill me to save my life. Please pray for me and my wife and ten children. His name is Shelby Moon. I shared this with him. I have a relative who's a Navy chaplain He's going through some difficulties in his work. I shared it with him. I have close friends who, at the end of, well, beginning of May and and June, um, they they have two daughters, and one daughter is married, and that daughter has their only grandchildren. And at that time, their daughter, for some very unusual reasons, cut them off and and literally took off their ability to see their grandchildren broke their heart i shared this with them it has such application there's a um there's always something you can share in the old testament that re- is reflective of what's in the new. I'm, I'm convinced of that, so I'll finish with this. As, as I've called you to reflect on your own life, to see if God is calling you to trust Him more deeply. Listen to the words of Jeremiah. Chapter 17, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, And makes flesh his strength. And whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert. And will not see when prosperity comes. But will live in stony washes in the wilderness. A land of salt without inhabitation. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And whose trust is the Lord. 
For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its root by the stream and will not fear when the heat comes and its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Trust that way. Amen? Let's pray. Father, in the sovereign weaving of the tapestry of our lives, Call us to see and perceive that you want us to solely put our trust in you who raised the dead. Amen.